Thanks for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community where I'm delighted to be with the founding chairman of the Society of Sports Therapists, Graham Smith, who happens to be a very, very experienced physiotherapist who's worked at the very top of football and now shares over 40 years' experience. Let's begin by talking about the issue of return to play um, and return to being able to um, participate in full training. You make an important distinction there. Why do you do that? I think, Karim, over the over the past few years, I think we within the sports medicine community, so to speak, have become very much focused on the the buzz phrase of return to play, and I'm not really sure that that's our responsibility. Our responsibility with patients is is to return them to unrestricted activities so that they're ready to go back to work. They can go back to full activities. And and the only people that are going to say that the competitor is fit to, to return to play is either going to be the individual themselves or the coach or manager that looks after them. If you take someone who's coming back from an ACL injury, where do you see the point where the clinician hands over to the coach and potentially the fitness and conditioning instructors if we take the the sports medicine team as being the doctor physiotherapist sports therapist massage therapist sports scientist and in some ways the the strength and conditioning although i would look for on the rehabilitation process that very much the the sport exercise therapist and the physiotherapist should be with the sports scientist should be very much involved in that it's the point where you know that they are ready to go back to unrestricted activities so that you can say then they can go into the strength and conditioning program and they can go into full training and you've taken them through a program which has aimed to expose any deficiencies and that you know that when they go back to work and their work, if you think about it, their work is to train to play the sport and you can hand on heart say they're ready to do that. It's only when they're in in that environment that that group on the strength and conditioning and the coach and the manager and the player themselves can determine that they are fit to play or compete in the activity. So it's the the transition is very much when when they're ready to be handed over with no restrictions. And so we need to make that really concrete. So we're talking about restrictions being range of motion, um, balanced strength. What are the elements that you feel the clinician needs to sign off on? If you take it, basic principles, one, obviously the injury needs to be recovered. They need to have symmetry as much as possible so that they can perform bilateral activities without any deficiencies or anything being exposed. They need to have aerobic fitness that is comparable to what they had before they were injured. They need to have anaerobic fitness that they had comparable before they were injured or, or sustained the trauma. They need to have gone through a skills-related final rehabilitation program, and they need to have gone, which is obviously going to start to expose them not only physically but psychologically, and they need to do, especially for the longer-term patient, what we would determine as a pre-discharge program. And the difference on the pre-discharge program is where, even though it is classified as part of the rehab and conditioning, you put them through everything they're going to be expected to do when they go back to work so that your aim is at that point to expose deficiencies and 
I suppose, in a way, I came from a, a military background of physiotherapy and, and rehabilitation, and our, our responsibility was obviously to get people back to go back into that environment. It's no good letting somebody go back into that environment if you have a doubt that they can't cope with what's going to be pushed at them the moment they return to work. On a simpler basis, fairly recently, I, I, I had a, a nurse who was basically being rehabilitated following a knee, knee, knee surgery and wanted to go back to work. And the, the guideline for her was when she could walk five miles per day for five consecutive days, only then would I even consider thinking about her going back to work. Because if she does a 12-hour shift, she's going to cover at least five to eight miles per shift. So she need, And she's not going to work one day and have three days off. She's going to have to be able to do it the next day and the next day. And I think that what we have to do in that pre-discharge is exactly the same with the sports people. You put them through the same environment that they're going to have to go through when they train to expose deficiency. And if they can't cope with those demands, they're not ready to go back to unrestricted training. And so it sounds like you think it's pretty linear um, where they're doing these things in that clinical setting, regaining range of motion, getting strength, versus someone else taking over like a coach for unrestricted training. But you're very familiar with the setting in elite teams where there's a team approach. Do you think these things can merge together? It's a, it's a really in, interesting question, Corinne, because what it, it sets up is, in a way, the dilemma that people face. In, in, if you are a sole clinician, so you're in a small club environment and you may be the only one that is going to be working in there, or then you have the ultimate responsibility for that person to take them through all the stages. So you will be their clinician, you will be doing their individual treatments, you will be doing their fitness and their conditioning, um, and you will obviously have to become have a very good relationship with that person to take them through. So there are difficulties when you're on if you're an individual practitioner and there are advantages because you have that total control. If you're if you're a part of a big team and a big unit, then it's really important that every single person in that team knows what has to be done at each stage of that rehabilitation progression. So that what they're going to do is they're going to that the, the person can't play one practitioner off against the other. They know that they've got to meet specific guidelines, and everybody within the group knows what those guidelines are. So that when the, when the individual is going through their rehabilitation program, that they know that they're part of a team, that, but that team speaks as one voice. The advantages of that are that you have input from a variety of people, which means that it, it, the, the, the patient then has different personalities that, to, get a, to, to deal with. The disadvantages are that you hope that every single member within that team is, is a strong member of the team and that there isn't one person who isn't following what you hope they'll follow. And can you give us an example from your experience where um, the multidisciplinary team has worked really well? In some of the English football clubs, I think you see the multidisciplinary team working well because if they have a, a, a good, strong lead and they work as, as an individual unit, I think 
when I again, if I if I reflect back on my background, when you look back at, at rehabilitation within, within a military environment, and and you look at the rehabilitation centres that, that we have specifically in, in the UK, what you see is you see a very strong rehabilitation team that, that's comprised obviously of the, of the exercise staff, the, the physical therapy staff, the medical staff, the, the occupational therapists working together, and everybody knows what the patient should be doing at a specific time. So if they don't meet the guidelines to be at one part of the process, so for example, if they're classified as an, an early knee patient, then and they have to progress to the next stage, which might be the intermediate stage, then everybody knows what the criteria for that progression is. If they don't meet that criteria at any time when they're in that group, then they will be moved back. So, and everybody knows that that's what has to happen. So there, there's no guessology. It's clearly defined. This is a criteria, and this is what we do. In some clubs, you see that that everybody knows that what has to be done at each point. And if they don't meet the criteria, then they don't progress through. And it requires everybody in the team to know that they're working to clearly defined objectives and objective measurements that will determine the progressions through that rehabilitation reconditioning process. So why don't you tell us your thoughts on the new work by Tim Gabbett and whether that's changed your view or whether it's reinforcing your previous experience that players need to have consistent, high-quality, hard training to stay injury-free. I think the work that was done by Tim Gabbett, for me, was was ideal because it reinforced a lot of the, of the thoughts and principles that I suppose I've utilised for many, many years. There is no... There is no alternative to hard work within rehabilitation. And if you have an injury, it has got to be easier to be back at work than going through rehab. And it's not, it's not an easy process. Tim talks about getting miles in, into the legs. And yes, you are going to have to get miles into the legs. You are going to get, have to get repetition of movement. If somebody has had a, a knee problem or knee surgery and they're going through the rehabilitation and a simple exercise like a flexion extension of the knee, how many repetitions has that person got to do? If I say to, if the patient asks me how many I've got to do and I then say to them, I need you to, to do a thousand, they look at me as if I'm crazy. But if they're going to play 90 minutes of professional football, how many times are they going to bend and straighten their leg? If they've had an adductor problem or a groin problem and you now have them on a process of, of, of an abduction, just simple exercises, how many, how many repetitions have you got to do? Well, it's no good giving that person three sets of 10 when, in fact, they're going to need at least 100, 200. How many times are you going to open and close your legs during a tennis match, during a football game, during a rugby match? So a lot of the exercise, they'll have to mirror what they're going to do. Now, obviously... You're not going to say in the very early stage, I want you to, to do 1,000 or I want you to do 200. But the ultimate aim is that's what they're going to have to do. And they're going to have to get, the, as, as Tim said, they're going to have to get the, the miles in the legs. And, and it's not just about endurance. It's about the ability to repeat movements in clearly defined patterns without losing and fatiguing so that you then start to put abnormal stresses and strains. So there is no substitute for hard work. 
Your thoughts on another ex- interesting piece of research, Jan Ekstrand's group, they're saying that the time it takes to recover from injury hasn't improved over the years and the injury rates in the Champions League teams are as high as they were before. How can that be the case when we're investing so much in terrific sports science and sports clinicians? <laughs> um, yeah, this is um, <clears throat> definitely a topic that sometimes does cause a an interesting reaction depending on which environment you bring it up in. If you look at <clears throat> the studies, and as you say, it clearly shows that, that basically the number of days lost in, in elite football in Europe isn't any different now to what it was 30 years ago. And as you say, what you now look at is what is the difference. You have significant amounts of money being invested into these multidisciplinary teams and basically the question would be, well, has it made any difference? Um, and what the, what the research has shown is, well, no, it doesn't. Does that mean that some of us that were working 20, 30 years ago we're doing exactly what we should be doing because we were getting these guys back and there is no difference. There's no doubt that if we take professional football, it has changed. <clears throat> it, is, it is faster. We now will say that a lot of these professional footballers at the highest level of European football are, and world football are elite athletes. They all have phenomenal skill levels. But they put, and so how is that different to 20 to 30 years ago? Well, there were different surfaces they play on, different ball, different training methods. <clears throat> so there are certain differences in, in the game and the demands that be in place. What I think will be very interesting is that if you look at players that played 20 to 30 years ago and you see them now, then we know that there's a high incidence of earlier knee replacements, hip replacements, arthritic changes in the, in the feet, ankle, and sometimes when you see a footballer from those days, they do look like old men. It will be interesting to see whether this medical care and, and protection that the players get now, with all this input, how that's going to affect the quality of life of these players in 20 to 30 years' time. Yeah, it will be very interesting indeed, Graham, and I really appreciate you chatting with me today. Before we close this podcast, I'm going to highlight um, elements of the Society of Sports Therapists conference, which is being held on May the 20th in the London Heathrow Marriott. And I've been fortunate to be at that conference a couple of times, and this year looks like one not to miss. It opens with Susan Alexander, who's a superbly trained shoulder surgeon, and she also has a PhD in cartilage repair and went to the trouble of doing a digital media training as well as education training. So she does a great job of getting messages across as well as being a terrific clinician. Johnny Wilson from Notts County talks about groin pain. Peter Bruckner explores hamstring injuries and the particular challenges with of the big ones. And Bill Knowles has two talks um, where he outlines comprehensive elements of rehabilitation and I've I've had the pleasure of witnessing those previously myself. After lunch, there are two wonderful sports therapists involved in the program, Peter Thane, who Graham referred to earlier, looking at the role of ice in lateral ankle sprains, and Tom Robinson, who's very active on Twitter as well, who talks about a difficult head injury that looks like a concussion at first glance. And finally, 
Graham does a great job of always finishing with something different and this time it's Leo Athanasatos who talked about life as a doctor in Formula One and that really has some surprises for you in that particular sport. It's a great day, food's great, it's easy to get to and I encourage you to consider that as part of your BJSM approved continuing professional development. Thanks for listening today and I do hope you get a chance to have a physically active day. 